0: John Newton, the author of the beloved hymn, Amazing Grace, wrote, Ignorance of the nature and design of the law is at the bottom of most religious mistakes. This is the root of self-righteousness, the grand reason why the gospel of Christ is no more regarded and the cause of that uncertainty and inconsistency in many who, though they profess themselves teachers, Understand not what they say, nor whereof they affirm. The bottom of most mistakes, religiously, spiritually, theologically, Newton says, can be traced to a misunderstanding of what God has given to us in his law as that relates to what he's provided for us in his gospel. Yesterday, we looked from... 1 Timothy chapter 1, how Paul says the law is good if one uses it lawfully. Uh, The law is objectively good, and it benefits us in the way that God intends when we use it in the way that he intends. And when it's misused, when we misconstrue the purpose of the law, then all kinds of errors, all kinds of difficulties emerge. Well, in order for us to go further in thinking about how to use the law lawfully, I want us to consider the words of Jesus and what Jesus has to teach us about the law. We particularly want to focus in on what I think are the most important words of Jesus about the law of God, which is found at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5, verses 17 through 20. Matthew chapter 5, 17 through 20. John Stott calls this paragraph in the early parts of the Sermon on the Mount a paragraph of great importance. Importance not only for its definition of Christian righteousness, but also for the light that it throws on the relationship between the New Testament and the Old Testament, between the gospel and the law. So I want us to look at this text in today's study and then again tomorrow first to see what it teaches us about God's Son and God's law. Jesus declares his own relationship to the law, to the Old Testament. We see this in verses 17, 18, and 19. And then tomorrow, look at what he goes on to say about God's children in relationship to God's law, which is found in verses 20 and 21. So please take a copy of the Scriptures and open to Matthew chapter 5, Verses 17 through 20. Follow along as I read these verses and uh, keep your Bibles open because I'm, I'm just going to try to walk us through what the Lord teaches us here about Himself in relationship to the law. Jesus said, Do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is explaining to his disciples the principles of his own kingdom. He's teaching them what it means to be a citizen of heaven, what is involved in being a faithful follower of him, his own disciple. He teaches us what constitutes true righteousness so that we won't be confused by the various ideas that have come our way about what's right, what's good what's true. He particularly has in focus on this occasion the misconstruals of the religious leaders among the Jews in the first century. How they had taken what God had revealed in the Old Testament and distorted it, ignored portions of it, and then confused things that God had intended to be understood simply for the welfare of his people in pointing toward and setting the stage for the coming of Messiah. The first part of the sermon deals with the character of the citizens of the kingdom. If you look at verses 3 through 12, these are what we call typically the Beatitudes, when he describes the kind of life that is blessed in the kingdom of God. Where is true blessing found? It's not found in the places where the world tells us we ought to seek the things the world tells us to aspire to, it is found in what Jesus explains to us constitutes the life of blessing from God. These beatitudes begin by saying, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The impoverished spirit, the person who knows before God he has nothing to offer, that... He cannot produce in himself, by himself, that which will make life benefit him. But rather he comes with empty hands. He comes with an awareness and understanding that he's a beggar. He's poor. And he needs what can only be supplied from above. Jesus goes on further to describe the blessings that come to the citizens of his kingdom as those who engage in mourning, who are meek, Who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Who are merciful, pure in heart. Who are peacemakers. And he further adds. Those who are persecuted for righteousness sake. Are blessed. Those who are reviled. And have all kind of evil spoken against them falsely. For the sake of Jesus. He said when that happens. You should rejoice and be exceedingly glad. Because that's the way they treated the prophets. Who were before you. And. The way of Christ in his kingdom, the way of blessing and following Christ, includes being persecuted for Christ. And rather than letting that cause us to turn inward on ourselves and engage in pity, we should rejoice because we are walking in that pathway of blessing in the kingdom of God. This is the way the kingdom of God works. Then in verses 13 through 16, Jesus describes How his disciples are to relate to the world. He says that you're salt and light. And you're to let your light shine before others. So that they may see their good works. And glorify our father who is in heaven. That's how his disciples are to live. And then it's immediately after this exhortation. Let your light shine. That we find the words in our text. He says people need to see your good works. So they can glorify your Father in heaven. What constitutes good works? What does he mean by that? If we're going to obey this exhortation, we're going to have to be clear about the standard by which works are judged to be good. Has the standard changed? Is what God revealed in the past now been supplanted by what he's revealing in the person and work of Christ? Matthew 4.23 says, Jesus went throughout Galilee proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. Is this good news of the kingdom somehow in opposition to what had been taught by the law and the prophets? What is the relationship between this new covenant and the old covenant? Well, these are the questions that Jesus addresses throughout this sermon. And before we get into the details of the sermon, before he does... He lays out the general principles on which the whole sermon is based in the paragraph that I've read, verses 17 through 20. Here's the foundation for everything else that is coming. Here he shows the continuity of his kingdom with everything that God has previously revealed. But he also shows the contrast between his kingdom and the teachings of the scribes and the Pharisees of his own day. So we want to look at the first part of this this morning and God willing tomorrow look at the second part of it. So our focus is going to be on the continuity of Christ's kingdom with Old Covenant revelation. And again, this is what we see primarily in verses 17 and 18. So look at those verses again with me. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law, the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Jesus affirms the abiding authority of God's law. If we're going to follow Christ, then we're going to have to submit our thinking to Christ. We're going to have to orient our way of living the standards that we Adopt for our lives as they are revealed to us by Christ. Jesus affirms the abiding authority of God's law first by explaining his relationship to Old Testament revelation. And by declaring the permanence of God's law. He says that he came not to abolish the Old Testament, but to fulfill it. That's verse 17. He says, do not think, do not think. Which indicates some people were thinking that way. Some people were inclined to think that he's come now. Uh, This is a new revelation from God. This means that everything in the past has been done away with. And we don't have to pay attention to those things any longer. Maybe it was because they saw what he was doing. How he acted on the Sabbath day in the ways that scribes and Pharisees took exception with. How come your disciples are harvesting grain on the Sabbath day when they walk through the fields? So I'm heal on the Sabbath. What is this? What is this lawbreaker doing? He says he comes from God and does this mean that the old things have now passed away? He openly associated with Gentiles, which to the religious leaders among the Jews was forbidden not to be done if you're going to be faithful to what God has revealed about His special covenant people. And Jesus here paying no attention to their misunderstanding, misuse of the law. Says I've come not to do away with, abolish, but to fulfill. Don't think that way. (laughs) So it's clear that Jesus intends to straighten out our thinking about the relationship between his kingdom and the Old Testament which is still greatly needed in our day. We need to be straightened out in our thinking about how the Old Testament relates to the New, how the full revelation of Christ relates to everything that had been revealed by God prior to Christ. He says, I've not come to abolish the law or the prophets. What does he mean by this? Well, he means the whole Old Testament in its completion, as well as all of the parts of the Old Testament. Negatively, he said, I didn't come to abolish this. I have no intention of violating, of invalidating what had been revealed by God before. Jesus didn't come proclaiming novelties. He didn't come proclaiming things that were completely contrary to, different from that which had been revealed before. But rather, he came in continuity with what had been revealed before. He came to complete what had been revealed before. His ministry is not on a collision course with the Old Testament. So when you hear preachers today saying we need to unhitch the Old Testament from our faith, do not think that they're telling you the truth. But remember the words of Jesus here. Positively, he says, he came to fulfill the law and the prophets, to fill to the full to bring to completion. Jesus wants to set the record straight here early in his ministry about his relationship to the Old Testament Scriptures. He didn't come to negate them. He came to fulfill them. The Old Testament is like an unfinished building. Foundations laid, some walls are put up, but it's not complete, and it's not intended to be complete. But it's not intended to be destroyed either in order to build something completely different. But rather, it's intended to be completed. And that's what the Lord Jesus did when he came. That's what we have in the New Testament. The Messiah came to bring fulfillment to all of the promises that God had made under that old covenant. Let's consider the ways that Jesus has fulfilled the law and the prophets. First, think about his relationship to the prophetic revelation that had gone before him in the Old Testament scriptures. When Jesus spoke these words, he was well on his way to fulfilling many of the prophecies that had been made about him prior to his incarnation. In fact, the very first prophecy made in Genesis 3:15 was that there would be a seed from the woman who would crush the head of the serpent. And when Jesus was incarnated, when the Son of God became flesh, was conceived in Mary's womb and given birth by the virgin, it was in fulfillment of that very first prophecy about Him. Or just think of a couple of prophecies specifically in Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 and 7. It says that it will be a virgin birth that will bring forth this Son. And Jesus was born of the virgin. Or Isaiah 53... Verses two and three say, he grew up before him like a young plant, like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised. We esteemed him not. Already, already in his ministry, he is experiencing this by his own people. Who is this carpenter's son? Jesus is fulfilling the prophecies before him. Isaiah 53 goes on Surely he has borne our griefs, he's carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. He's going to fulfill that prophecy. And when you read the gospel accounts of the death of Jesus and you go back and read Isaiah 53, it's as if you're reading an eyewitness account by the prophet 700 years before the event actually occurred. The prophet Jonah, his whole life, his ministry testimony was A prophecy about Jesus, as Jesus himself makes clear. When he was three days in the belly of that great fish, so the Son of Man will be three days in the earth. So Jesus didn't come to overturn the prophets. He came to fulfill the prophets. He came in completion of what they began. What God revealed to them would happen, he came and actually brought to pass. So we teach our children to think about the relationship between the Old and the New Testaments in this way of continuity, that the new is in the old concealed, and the old is in the new revealed, because God who revealed himself in the Old Testament is the same God who reveals himself in the New Testament. Our Lord has fulfilled and will fulfill every predictive prophecy that has been made about him in the Old Testament. He did not abolish the prophets, he fulfills them. And that then gives us a key by which to think of his fulfillment of the law in the same way. He didn't come to abolish the law. Well, which law does Jesus have in mind when he says this? Well, all of it. All of the law in the Old Testament. Now, obviously, there are different kinds of laws revealed by God in the Old Testament, and it doesn't matter how you do it. You must distinguish between laws in the Old Testament or you're going to be hopelessly confused in trying to understand the New Testament. It's just inevitable. Let me just give you one example. If you turn over to Romans chapter 2, there are those among us today who, say, well, you can't do that. You can't divide up the laws of the Old Testament because uh, you're, you're doing something the Bible doesn't allow. Well, I would submit that if you don't make distinctions in the Old Testament law somehow, you cannot understand the New Testament. Paul's making this argument in Romans 2 when he's going after Jewish uh, Christians who may be sliding into their thinking about uh, how they are superior in some way or the Jews are somehow superior to the Gentiles. And in verse 25, he's talking about the circumcision Uh, The practice of circumcision. He says in verse 25 for circumcision indeed is of value if you obey the law. Well wait a minute isn't isn't circumcision part of the law? Wasn't circumcision commanded? So automatically in Paul's mind there's a distinction. You can obey the law of circumcision and yet not obey the law. So in his mind he's thinking of some kind of distinction you just keep reading it's the same point that he makes here. Uh, If you but if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. So if I obey the law of circumcision and break the law that Paul's talking about, then it's just like I never obeyed the law of circumcision. Do You see, if you don't have some kind of distinction, you cannot make any sense of what the Apostle Paul is arguing for in Romans chapter 2. And so we must recognize, okay, when Jesus says that he didn't come to abolish the law, he's talking about all of the law of the Old Testament but we recognize that within those Old Testament commands and prescriptions that there must be distinctions that we make. Well, how did Jesus fulfill the law? I didn't come to destroy it. How did he fulfill it? He did it by his life. He was born under the law. He was born as a Jew and as a Jew, he kept the requirements that God had laid upon that old covenant people. Isaiah forty-two twenty-one says that he came to magnify the law and to make it honorable. For the Pharisees in Jesus' day, the law was this massive burden. And they prided themselves in their ability to bear it. And they taught the law in such a way that it was virtually impossible for anyone else to bear it. So the law was this repressive code that weighed heavily upon people. For Jesus, God's law was the opposite. We read that for him, the law was a delight. Isaiah 40, verse 8, Messiah says, I delight to do your will, O my God. Your law is within my heart. Jesus fulfilled the righteous requirements of God's law By keeping the commandments that he gave perfectly. Jesus loved God with all of his heart, soul, mind, and strength. Jesus loved his neighbor as he loved himself. In fact, the Apostle Paul summarizes Jesus' life in Romans 5.18 as one act of righteousness. By one act of righteousness, he's thinking about the whole life, the whole ministry Everything that Jesus did, and by this he kept the whole law for his people. But God's law not only prescribes perfect righteousness, it also pronounces a curse upon unrighteousness. So its judgments must be satisfied against all the violators of it, all lawbreakers. And although Jesus had no personal violations, nothing that he had done in his own life, to pay for, because he substituted himself for his people, he also fulfilled the curse of God's law. He did this by his death. Ezekiel 18.20 says, The soul who sins shall die. Atonement must be made. Violation of God's commandments is a capital crime. And the only suitable punishment to fit such a crime... Is eternal death. Eternal death. Death under the wrath of God. Which is precisely what Jesus experienced on the cross. Jesus tasted eternal death. How does that work? I I can't get it around my mind. With the limited understanding physics and reality that I have. But when the eternal Son of God experienced the wrath of God, it was a payment of eternal death, which is what all sin requires. And he did this to save his people from their sins. He laid down his life on the cross to fulfill the law's demands that Lawbreakers be punished. Brothers and sisters, what this means is that the very subsoil of Mount Calvary is Mount Sinai. And the Lord Jesus willingly went to Calvary to satisfy Sinai. You can't understand the cross unless you recognize that by his death, what Jesus is doing is actually fulfilling. The law's demands. He's paying the penalty the law requires of lawbreakers. Listen, penal substitution is not some type of pagan idea that is imported into the cross. Penal substitution is not some type of Latin form that has been superimposed upon what Jesus accomplished by his death. It is the heart of what Jesus came to do. In Matthew 5, 17, he says he came to fulfill the law. And if he's going to be a savior of sinners, that fulfillment must include paying the penalty of their sin, which is what he does on the cross. This is why Jesus goes on to say what he does in Matthew 5:21 through 48. He came to fulfill the law, and in order for that to be understood, He has to rescue the law. He has to rescue it from the superficial, multi-layered misrepresentations that the scribes and Pharisees had placed upon it. They boxed it up. They made it manageable. They said, well, of course, thou shalt not commit adultery, which means you don't sleep with your secretary. And I'm not sleeping with my secretary. I've kept the law. And Jesus says, oh, yeah, you've caged up the law. Let me uncage it for you. Anyone who even looks upon a woman with lust in his heart has violated the seventh commandment. Jesus rescues from misunderstanding, misinterpretation, the law that God had given to rule his people. Because he gave no credence to their many traditions and mishandling of God's law, the religious leaders were suspicious of him, they became antagonistic toward him, they ultimately hated him. And they thought they were justified because they believed he was intent on abolishing the law. Jesus makes it plain. He's not come to abolish the law of the prophets, but to fulfill them. And he has done this perfectly by his life and by his death. So Jesus didn't come to abolish the Old Testament, including the law and the prophets. He came to fulfill it. But not only that, in verse 18... He goes on to affirm the permanence of God's law. He says the law will not pass away until it is accomplished. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Here Jesus is teaching us the perpetuity of the law of God. That what God has revealed has a purpose and that revelation of his requirement, his commandments, will not stop until the purpose of those commandments is fulfilled. I said earlier, you can't make sense of what the New Testament teaches about Old Testament law unless you make some kind of distinctions in those Old Testament laws. The threefold division of the law into judicial, ceremonial, and moral categories is useful for this very reason. And we shouldn't be surprised that we find this type of distinction being made from. People as far back as Aquinas, to John Calvin, to the Puritans, and to our own 1689 Second London Baptist Confession of Faith all have used this threefold distinction in order to help us understand how the Old Testament commandments were given, to whom they were given, for what purpose they were given, and how they are fulfilled in Jesus. I like the way that John MacArthur explains this point. MacArthur says, We can divide the law of God into three parts. The moral law, the judicial law, and the ceremonial law. The moral law was for all men. The judicial law was just for Israel. And the ceremonial law was for Israel's worship of God. So the moral law encompasses all men. It is narrowed down to Israel in the judicial law and to the worship of Israel toward God in the ceremonial law. All divine legislation is binding until its purpose has been fulfilled. Jesus here is very precise. He wants us to be very precise. Not an iota, not a dot, not a jot, not a tittle, not the smallest little stroke of the pen in writing out the alphabet will pass away until the whole law is accomplished, until it's fulfilled its purpose. Well, let's think about this in terms of the various categories of Old Testament commandments. Let's use this threefold approach. The ceremonial law, given to Israel as a worshiping community. What did that entail? It entails all of the sacrificial system that we read in the Old Testament. All of the temple worship. All of the special days and seasons. All of the priesthood all of the purification rituals, all of the morning and evening sacrifices, all of the offerings, all of that was a part of God's requirement on how his old covenant people were to worship. And when you read Hebrews chapter 9, you read that all of these requirements, all of these ceremonial laws were imposed until the coming of Jesus, who by his life and death has fulfilled them all. They all pointed to him. They were shadows and types of the reality that was to come. And now that he has come, he has fulfilled them. We no longer are obligated to worship in accordance with them. We don't offer up animal sacrifices. We don't wave incense. We don't burn candles. We don't go through all of those rituals given to the old covenant people. Why? Because they served their purpose. And we have the sacrifice. We have the fulfillment of everything that they were pointing toward. And why in the world would we go back and look at the photograph when the person whose picture it is is right here with us? We have Christ. Think of the judicial law. Given to Israel as a body politic, an earthly kingdom. Including all of those case laws, both civil and criminal. God providing it to them so that they might thrive in the world of nations as caretakers of His covenants and promises. And with the coming of Christ, in the establishment of His everlasting spiritual kingdom, the Old Testament civil theocracy is over. It has served its purpose. We are now, as Peter describes it in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9... All God's people are now a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people of his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. So we're the nation. We're the people of God. It's not a geopolitical entity, it's not a nation that has geographical borders, but rather it encompasses all peoples, all nations. And yes, there's righteousness that is found in some of those Old Testament case laws that still apply today that we should look and learn from and see the general equity in them and try to live according to that. But we don't look for a theocratic kingdom in line with what the old covenant people of Israel was as we live out our citizenship In the kingdom of Jesus Christ. In that sense, the civil law of the Old Testament has served its purpose. What about the moral law? Well, this was given to Israel as well. But it wasn't given to Israel as a body politic. It wasn't given to Israel as a worshiping community. It was given to Israel as image bearers of God. Teaching them to love God supremely and to love people sincerely. This moral requirement of God upon His image bearers is summarized in the Ten Commandments which alone of all the Old Testament laws were written by the finger of God on tablets of stone. This law still obtains today because though God's people are no longer a Jewish worshiping community, they're no longer a Jewish geopolitical nation, God's people are still People made in his image. We still bear the image of our Creator and the responsibility that goes with that to represent him in the world. So God's standard of righteousness remains in force because its purpose is still being served. In Christ's kingdom, the Ten Commandments remain the rule of life for his people, not as a way to attain salvation. I tried to make clear yesterday, not as a ladder that we climb up in order for God to accept us, but rather as a standard of righteousness, a rule for our conduct, which obligates not just believers but unbelievers as well because we are all creatures made in the image of God. Listen to the way that our second London Baptist Confession of Faith of 1689 puts it in chapter 19. Paragraph two, it says, this same law that was first written in the heart of man continued to be a permanent rule of righteousness after the fall and was delivered by God upon Mount Sinai in Ten Commandments and written in two tables, the four, for, four first containing our duties toward God, the other six our duty to man. And then paragraph five, this moral law does forever bind all as well as justified people as others to the obedience thereof. And that not only in regard of the matter contained in it, but also in respect of the authority of God, the creator who gave it. Neither does Christ or the gospel in any way dissolve, but much strengthen this obligation. This is why Jesus rebukes the Pharisees and the scribes who thought themselves to be such keepers of the law. And he basically says, you guys are just playing around. You don't understand. You've missed the point and the purpose of the commandments of God. He is not, in verses 21 through 48, establishing a new or a higher law. Jesus is recovering the true meaning of God's moral law that was revealed in the Old Testament. He's recovering it from the misconstruction of it by the Jewish leaders and teachers in the first century. Brothers and sisters. We need to get this. Do you see how important God's law is to our savior? It's important enough for Jesus to lay this foundation. At the outset of his exposition. Of what righteousness looks like in his kingdom. He plainly says he didn't come to abolish the law to fulfill it. He's done it by Living in complete obedience to God's requirements and then laying down his life as a payment for violation of those requirements. And as we'll see in our next study, he intends for his people to live in submission to God's commandments the way that he himself did. He intends for us to seek to honor God by living lives of righteousness through faith in him by the power of his spirit. Jesus has recovered for us the true meaning of God's law, and he reveals its strictness and its spirituality to us as the way of God that is not only right, but good. The way of blessing. The the way that reflects the character of the God whose righteousness is revealed in his commandments. So Jesus affirms the abiding authority of God's law. He intends for His kingdom to be a righteous kingdom. His people to be a righteous people. The law shows us our unrighteousness, where we fall short. It shows us our utter inability to keep its righteous requirements in our own strength. And by doing so, it reveals our need of the Savior. As Jeff pointed out last night, it continues to work that way in the life of a Christian. So that you look at your life and you measure it not by other people, You don't measure it by the opinions of others. You measure your life by what God calls you to be. You measure your life by his commandments. You measure your life by the one who kept his commandments perfectly, the law incarnate, Jesus Christ. And you realize on your best day, you need his grace and mercy as much as you do on your worst day. And because Jesus has done it, you realize that on your worst day, you have his grace and mercy as much as you do on his best day, your best day. This is how God intends for us to live, by trusting the gospel and seeking to keep his commandments. It's as we turn away from our sin, we don't play games with it, we don't try to cover them up, we don't pretend that they're less than they are, that the righteousness of God in Christ for us through faith becomes increasingly precious to us. And it's because this is true, because this is the way God has done it, brothers and sisters, we can commend Christ to the worst Of sinners in the world. Because he has done everything necessary. To reconcile sinners to God. I love what Greg Welty says at this point. The same Christ whose life is the ground of our imputed righteousness. That is what he has done has been credited to us. Is the Christ whose life is the pattern for our practical righteousness. So don't be afraid of God's law. Don't get nervous when you see commandments given in Scripture, but rather look at those commandments honestly. Measure your life by those commandments. And where you see that you need to change by the power of God's Spirit and the grace that is in a crucified, risen Savior, commit yourself to change. Determine, by His help, I will live in obedience to his commandments. And when you fail, you confess it, you repent, and you get up, and you start over again because you have a Savior. And you don't let the law bang you down and beat you down and condemn you. No, because you have a Savior who satisfied it. But you look at that law, and you say, this is what's right. This is what's good. This is a way of blessing. Oh, God, help me by your Spirit to live in obedience to your commandments. And that's the way of Christian discipleship. I, again, I, you've come to this conference because you have an interest in the Bible and this topic. and So the presumption is, of course, that we're all converted. But Jesus had 12 disciples. One of them was the devil. And so it, it could well be you're here and, and maybe religious, maybe in ministry. And yet you've never come to settle Your relationship with God through faith in Jesus Christ. And maybe you've looked at the law and you've seen, yeah, that's right, that's good. And you've been trying to keep it and you know you don't and you fail. And you just are hanging on and you're thinking, maybe somehow something will happen down the road. or God will understand I tried. Friend, Jesus came to fulfill the law. He's done it all. You can get off of that treadmill of thinking if you just go a little bit faster, you'll get further down the road it'll never happen. And look to Christ. Trust Christ. He came and shed his blood for lawbreakers like you and me. And there's life in him. There's forgiveness in him. It doesn't matter where you've been, what you've done. Doesn't matter how long you've gone down this wrong road. If God by his spirit is causing you to see what he has done for sinners in Christ today, praise God, trust Christ and be accepted by your creator. As you do that, You will have the power of the Spirit given to you. You will be enabled then to get up and look at that law that has condemned you all your life and say, this law is good and right. My Savior kept it for me. And by His grace, I'm going to seek to live in obedience to all the commandments of God that He's given for me. The Lord Jesus didn't come to abolish the law. He came to fulfill it. And He has fulfilled it. And as our law-keeping savior, he calls us as his followers, his disciples, to walk in the way of obedience that he himself walked. And we do it not in our own strength, not thinking that we've attained it. We do it because our savior has attained it, and we press on to that mark. And we know the day's coming, the day's coming, when all that we're committed to, complete conformity to Christ, will be realized. None of this will be in vain. It'll all be for the purpose of magnifying the glory and the grace of our great, holy, righteous, loving God. Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you so much for what you've given us in Jesus. It's hard for us to comprehend how he perfectly kept your commandments when we look into the righteous requirements that you've revealed for us in your law we're undone we we can hardly conceive how a real human being can fulfill the strictness and spirituality of your law's demands and when we look at Christ and see that he has done so we don't even know emotionally how to take it in and respond to know that we have a Savior who's done this for us. I pray that your spirit would teach us more deeply what it means to have the Lord Jesus as our law-keeping, law-fulfilling Savior. And I do pray for anybody here today that has been living under the condemnation of the law. Would you not speak in ways that will set them free? Would you not show them Christ and grant to them genuine repentance of sin and genuine faith to trust in him, to live in him, that they might be set free and come to know your goodness and your glory and your grace in providing your Son as our Savior. Hear our prayers. Seal to our hearts the things that are true from your word that we've considered. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.